So Ash Wednesday is really weird. Just going to get that out of the way up front. We do a bunch of weird things when we gather on this day every year. And the weirdness of Ash Wednesday really first struck me a few years ago on an Ash Wednesday service I went to at the church I attended when I was in seminary. And so I was sitting there up front serving in some role during the imposition of ashes, and I was watching this kind of line of people make their way forward of all different ages coming up front to have their heads marked with ashes and to be reminded of their mortality. And I really didn't think too much about what was going on beyond that, just kind of watching all of this happen. But all of that changed in an instant. And that happened when a friend of mine from school who had given birth to a child a few weeks before appeared in the line holding this baby in her arms. And I watched her look at her child with this look of kind of just being enamored with this new life that she had been entrusted with caring for and raising and nurturing. And I watched my friend kind of make her way to the front. And when she got to the front of the line, I saw the priest do what he'd been doing all evening. He dipped his finger in the bowl and he made the sign of the cross on her forehead and he recited the same line that he'd said already many times before. But really is what got to me is what happened next. Because she didn't move, she stayed there. And the priest returned his finger to the bowl and he reached out his hand and he placed it on the head of my friend's little child. And he smeared the ashes in the sign of the cross. And he said the same words that are a reminder of the curse of death that's been upon humanity since the fall. Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. That was the moment that really struck me how kind of weird and odd and strange Ash Wednesday really is. I was sitting there thinking, you know, I had no problem at that time with people in their 30s or their 50s or their 80s, you know, contemplating their mortality and their finitude. But an infant, a few weeks old, it seemed a bit too much to me. And I found myself saying and thinking to myself, couldn't we just leave this poor little guy alone? He's going to have a whole life ahead of him, Many years where he can contemplate his mortality, come face to face with death, all of those things. And couldn't we just pass on the ashes and the dust for one year? But no. I quickly came to realize that this jarring sight was so jarring because it kind of shook me out of my complacency and it pointed towards the fundamental reality of what life in this fallen world is. And life in this fallen world is marked by the shadow of death that looms over everyone, young and old alike, every single one of us here tonight. And on Ash Wednesday, we come to confront this reality head on, face to face, to sit with the discomfort that it causes us. And I know it can kind of seem rather, I don't know, morbid and depressing to focus so much on this, you know, a bit goth or something like that, but that's really not the point of Ash Wednesday. It's part of it, but it's not all of it. The reason we come today to confront our own mortality is really first and foremost to come and remind us what is true, what is true about our world, what is true about ourselves, and most importantly, what is true about God. We come to name sin and brokenness in the world around us and within ourselves. We come to remember that God is merciful and gracious, and ultimately, we come to acknowledge our deep and utter dependence on God that we so often and so easily forget. This reality that we didn't give ourselves life and through our own willpower, no matter what we do, we actually can't extend our own life. The reality and the truth that we are creatures, that we were created, 
that someone else is ultimately responsible for us. And that in his original design and plan, God made us to live in a relationship with himself. The only thing in all creation that was given his own image, made in his likeness. And in this relationship, God is the one who is to provide for everything that we need. Where we as creatures don't have to kind of strive for ourselves, but with simple and childlike trust, can rely on God to provide for us and meet our needs. The problem, though, is that we are not very good at that at all. As the great theologian Billy Joel once said, we didn't start the fire. So we didn't start this fire. We weren't the first ones who walked away from this kind of relationship with God. That happens in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, said an emphatic no to what God had offered them and turned and walked the other direction. But at the same time, each of us have our own part in this rebellion too. We have our own legacy to add to theirs. And we spend so much of our lives, you really think about it, trying to make it, trying to make it on our own, trying to hold everything together that's on our plate all the time, try to figure everything out. And when we can, at least trying to make it appear that we have everything figured out and are holding everything together. And the reality of life is that it's really easy for us to begin to think in some ways that we're self-sufficient. Either that we are the masters of our own destiny, meaning we have some kind of like uh, confidence that we have everything under control, or we live as kind of an anxious wreck all the time, trying to hold a bunch of things together that's actually not possible to do. The reality is we are not in control, and we are not the masters of our own destiny. But if you're anything like me, you've probably had times where this kind of self-sufficiency narrative has been the main one operating in your life, where you kind of think that everything's good, I've got it, I'm the one I need to depend on. And then something happens that we have no power over. Something like a diagnosis, or an addiction, or a betrayal by someone who is close to us that we didn't even see coming and takes us completely off guard, or an impossible situation in our job or in our career where we feel trapped and there's no way out or a marriage that's pushed to its breaking point, or a child who's quit returning our phone calls and we fear is walking away from us for good, or a death or a loss that completely knocks us on the floor and the waves of grief that follow it. In the face of these kind of overwhelming things that life is really good at throwing at us sometimes, that lie of our self-sufficiency completely unravels, and we're left in a place where there's really only one thing left to do. When all of the things that we normally turn to to assert control over our lives are gone, all we can do is cry out for someone to come and to save us, to deliver us. One of the things that we remember today is that when we cry out, we have a God who promises to hear us, and that we have a God who promises as well to deliver us and to save us. And when God hears us and he meets us in his mercy, even when we're confused, even when we don't understand exactly what's going on, when God gives us even some small bit of comfort by his presence and his spirit, we actually gain a little bit of a glimpse into what our relationship with him is supposed to be and of what it looks like to truly trust him. This is actually one of the reasons that Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years before us have marked this season of Lent by fasting, by giving up things in their lives. 
So just like marking our heads with ashes to be reminded of our mortality, the practice of fasting reminds us of this ultimate dependence that we have on God. You think about it, if you don't eat, you very quickly realize how dependent you are on food. It happens real fast, not just your stomach gurgling, but for me, it's the way you start treating people. Liz looks at me and she's like, do you need to eat? And I'm like, no. Yeah, I do. I do need to eat. Think about if you don't eat, if you give up something like sugar and you notice how quickly you kind of crave it or how often you go to it, if you do something like set aside time to listen to God and to be quiet, how quickly your mind can't focus and bounces to a million different things. All of these kind of things that we do in Lent aren't things we're doing to impress God. Rather, they're things to remind us that we're far less in control of even ourselves and our own desires than we would really care to admit. And each time we experience our weakness through these kind of things, it's actually really an invitation. It's an invitation to a deeper and deeper dependence and reliance on God. So after his baptism, Jesus goes out into the desert, and he fasts for 40 days. And during those 40 days, he's out there being tempted by Satan. I always love Mark's account of this because he tells us that Jesus was fasting for 40 days, and at the end of the 40 days, he was hungry. Thanks, Mark. Like, could have inferred that, probably. So Jesus here at the end of this epic fast, Jesus who's fully human, who, you know, imagine what 40 days of fasting is, Satan tempts him by asking him to turn stones into loaves of bread. And Jesus' response to him is that, man, people, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what fasting is really about. Part of fasting is to remind us that the things that we're so dependent on in this world, the joys, even things that we find in this world, those are all fleeting. They're not eternal. And that true joy only comes from one source. And that source is God himself. We're reminded that nothing less than the living God will ever satisfy us. So in our reading tonight from Joel, we find Israel in a familiar place. They're under God's judgment. So yet again, they've been unfaithful to their covenant with the Lord. Yet again, they've forgotten their need to rely on God. And yet again, they are now facing the harsh consequences of their own actions. We find Israel reaping what they have sowed. And Joel describes this coming day of the Lord, and it's downright terrifying. He talks about a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and of thick darkness, he says that it's a day that's going to cause all the inhabitants of Israel to tremble in fear before the Lord. But even in the face of God's judgment, his mercy shines even brighter. Because God then invites his people, his people who over and over again at this point have rejected him, and have rejected him and again back into relationship with himself. Yet even now, says the Lord, Yet even now, as you face the consequences of your sinfulness and your hard-heartedness, even now as you've rejected me and tried to make it on your own, return to me. Come back. Return to me with your, all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. This is what God is saying to us, too, on this Ash Wednesday as we begin Lent. Yes, we are all broken. Yes, we are all sinful. And yes, 
we all in our own ways have said no to God. Yet even now, but even now, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love for you and for me. This returning to the Lord that God calls us to is what we call repentance. And during Lent, our repentance, our turning back to God, is marked by the exact same things we find God telling the Israelites to do, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. So we fast to remind ourselves of our utter dependence on God that we've forgotten, and we mourn the brokenness of the world around us and within ourselves. And knowing that God is gracious and merciful, that as far as the east is from the west, he separates our sins from us. We can come and we can confess our own sin and our own participation in the world's brokenness. But ultimately, God calls us to repent, to return to him by rending our hearts. So it was common practice in Joel's time and kind of in the Jewish culture in general to rend your garments, to rip your clothing when you began a fast or when you were trying to show your own sorrow for your actions and what you had done. But God explicitly doesn't call for that here. No, he's not calling for empty outward devotion, the kind of thing that Jesus calls out when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He's calling for something that's really far deeper and more costly to us. He's calling us to genuine repentance, which begins not with the things that we do, the kind of practices we put together and outward things, but begins within us right here, begins in our hearts. Begins in our hearts from knowing our sin and feeling its weight, from confronting the parts of ourselves and our lives that are far from God, and from facing the pain that's caused by our own brokenness and the brokenness of the world around us. After the imposition of ashes in a few minutes, we'll read together Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, we read that the sacrifice of God is a troubled spirit and that God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51 is describing what really is the posture of repentance. It's the exact sacrifice that God is inviting us into this Lent to come and to face the world as it really is and to face ourselves as we really are and to be pushed up against the reality of our own need and the fact that we are utterly dependent on God. Because when we get to that point and when our illusion of our self-sufficiency is gone and we realize that our own supply of righteousness isn't enough to cut it, there's really only one thing that's left for us to do which is to cling to Jesus with everything we have. That is what Lent is about, clinging to Jesus, the one who has known every single temptation that we know and yet did not sin, the one who, as we say no to God, said yes. Jesus, the one who does everything that we should have in our place. Jesus, the one who by his dying and rising again has defeated death, He has the final word over death. He holds the keys. Jesus, the one who, when we have said no to God, over and over again says yes to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that despite our no to you, you always say yes to us and your son, Jesus. And Lord, this day as we stand before you and we hold before you ourselves, the things we carry, the things, Lord, for which we feel burdened, Lord, we ask that you would meet us in your mercy and your grace. Lord, we ask this Lent would be marked not by our sin, but Lord, by your righteousness and your goodness, by the fact that you are merciful and gracious. And Lord, we pray now and in this season ahead that we would know that you are the one that walks with us, that your grace would make us new, would make us more your people, and Lord, that your grace would set us free. Amen.